One thing I'm curious to know your, your thoughts on is how do you think the rest of the hospital views intensive care? I'm thinking about this. I always start with the way I saw intensive care before I even walked into it as a, as a medical student or as a, as a medical resident. I didn't even know what happened in the ICU. You know, despite becoming an intensivist now, I think I was still in my second year doctor. I'd been an intern. I was a second year doctor. I'd still never really understood what even happened in the ICU. When you went to the door to send your patient in there, it was kind of like they went into fairyland. And I actually think that a fair few people within our hospital system would still see it that way. They don't really know what happens. We're not good at telling the hospital or selling ourselves for what we do. It's hard, you know, you don't want to spend your whole time marketing what you do, but, but I think we could do that better. And so going back to what, what, how I started this, I think, you know, if you've had a difficult interaction with a vascular surgeon about a patient they wanted to bring and you didn't really want them because the patient was, you know, had too many comorbidities or was elderly and you didn't think it was right, they, they're always going to think you're the bad guy because you're not letting their patient in. Uh, whereas if you're very helpful and you, you come up and you see the patient straight away and you always solve the problem for them, whether that's arranging end-of-life care or, or bringing them to the ICU, they're going to love you. And it's usually that which portends the, the way they see you. And so I, I don't really know, but I think we should be aware more about what the perceptions of, of other people around the hospital are and, and perhaps we're, we're not well enough. Yeah, I would agree. How we are viewed is framed by our interactions with other people there was, and I think there is that gravitas that, that intensive care carries. I think people probably overall do value that we are very deeply involved with our patients. We do spend a lot of time mm. with them. We do have that time to be able to talk to them and make important decisions about the care that they're going to get and which interact, interventions we're going to give. And I think people do value that. And I think they do value that we're quite experienced at end-of-life care. I would think if I was dying, I'd quite like to be in an ICU because I think I'm going to get good care. I, I had a recent experience where I was the consultant on in the, in the ICU and everyone was busy and we had to refer a patient to a, another hospital in Melbourne because they needed care at that hospital that we couldn't give. And I ended up making the phone call and calling them. I thought, oh, I'll make it easy. I'll, I'll just talk consultant to consultant and, and this will be a breeze. In the end, they, of course, they, they don't ever put you through to the consultant. They put you through to the, the senior registrar who's taking calls. And this one day, having many, every, every experience I've ever had ringing another hospital, it's usually, oh, we don't have a bed or oh, do we have to or have you talked to someone else for, you know, have you got approval from the vascular surgeon or, you know, there, there's some hurdle. On this occasion, I rang this guy and the, the, picked up, the guy who picked it up was the senior reg and he said, he said uh, how can I help today? And I, I said, oh, I'm Andrew, I'm from, you know, Frankston Hospital and I've got a patient for you. He said, oh, fantastic. Well, I'll see what I can do to help you. And I, and I said, oh, that sounds good. You must be quiet. You must have some beds. He said, no, we've got no beds, but I'm going to do whatever I can to help you. <laughs> and, I, and just the way he, he phrased that and the, the, the willingness to serve and to help was really eye-opening for me because I don't think I would sound like that on the phone. I'd like to think I'd sound, uh, you know, heading in that direction, but I would never sound that welcoming. And, and, and I thought that was really important. And I, I, I like to tell that story sometimes now to our trainees because I hope they'd be like that when they get rung at our hospital by a surgeon or by a, an intern. I think that stuff's really you know, important, how you, you sound and how willing you are to come and help. You, you must be willing to help. You know, that's what we're there for. And so I think that's another important thing that we, we've got to concentrate on. And sometimes even the conversation on the phone is just, you know, really, can you hold my hands through... Mm -hmm this referral because I don't really know that they need ICU. My boss mm. thinks they do and I'm not really sure that they do. And if you say they don't need to come to ICU based on your experience and mm. your, you know, your skills, then, then I'll accept that. And I think sometimes people 
that the referrer sometimes doesn't put it in those terms because they're too scared because every time they ring anyone else in the hospital, they are harassed. So, and, and we sometimes harass them too. You said that, and I think we do. So uh, I think some of us do anyway. And I think therefore we, we've got to try to avoid that harassment aspect where we're, we're not gatekeepers, we're helpers. And we started this conversation saying that ICUs move beyond the walls of the ICUs. So what, why wouldn't we be there to help them? Now, it doesn't always have to be the doctor that helps. And it certainly can be, you know, in my hospital, we have nurse practitioners that run our medical emergency team, and they're fantastic. They, they do a lot of this work. So a doctor doesn't even need to go with them. In other times, it can be the senior registrar needs to, to sort of just show that they've got the extra experience and, and understanding to deal with this problem. Sometimes it, you can send up a junior trainee, and sometimes it's just a phone call. As I've become more senior, I've become much more aware of the the harm that we do with our treatments, really easy to do stuff to people. The concept of doing less for our patients is, is certainly what the evidence seems to be suggesting is the right thing. You know, when I, when I first started, we were putting Swan GANS catheters into to nearly every patient that was ventilated. And, you know, you'd have six or seven Swan GANS catheters in, in the ICU. And, and, and now I've, I haven't put one in for 15 years now, you know, and so... But most places have become a lot less interventional, and I don't know that we're less um, medication. We still, I think, we still use a lot of medications, and probably more than, than than we used to. But the idea of doing less, particularly in emergency situations, you know, just standing back and really assessing the situation and deciding whether this is really what should happen for a patient, is an important skill that I think we, we again we don't teach well. I think we, you know, you notice it about the, the colleagues you see that do that well, but I think that's uh, something we should concentrate on more because sometimes just jumping in and doing things—it's too late once you've started it all. Uh, to back out now and tell the family you, you shouldn't have intubated this patient is is hard, and then suddenly a week later it takes another week before you can actually get to the point where you are uh, removing the endotracheal tube, you know, under a under an end of life terminal situation mm. uh, you wasted a week and that, that, that sometimes that's valuable for the patient's family to spend time with them and you know hold them and talk to them and all that sometimes that is valuable but other times it's just taken it out too long we are sometimes resuscitating patients and you must resuscitate aggressively when that's appropriate there's no doubt about that but yeah the other the other things are all about pattern recognition where you know that you've seen someone like this and you don't need to rush on to to bipap just yet or you don't need to or maybe it's not you know cardiogenic shock it's it's septic shock or whatever it is you can just tell by the the glance at the patient and and i think where where i sometimes let myself down in this situation though is that i don't necessarily communicate that quickly and efficiently to the other people that are with me. I'm thinking it up here and I think, ah, it's all good. It's all at hand. I've got it under control. But they're still jumping around thinking, what does Andrew want me to do for this patient? Or what should I be doing? Shouldn't I get a blood gas? Shouldn't I get a drip in? Shouldn't I a cannula in? Shouldn't I do these things? And and I think that, you know, we should sometimes say, hey, listen, you know, I think things are under control. Let's just sit and watch for a moment and let's just find out if there's a family member outside and go through that. You talked about the quiet ICU being the best or a low number of patients in the ICU. I won't say the word quiet. That always works against everybody. But a low number of patients in the ICU is good. I also think an ICU where there's general stability in all the patients is a, is a great ICU too. And I sometimes sense that some of the colleagues I work with have the ability to impart a sense of general 
stagnancy amongst the patients. They seem to be able to know when they when they're on, everything seems calm and cool. Whereas there are others that are sort of more aggressive, proactive, jumping around, doing lots of things. And and the ICU when you come in after them is just sort of mayhem. And I think that's another skill that we we need to identify as you should be a calming influence as the intensive care consultant on for that period of time that you're on. And the way you do that is by the way you communicate with your team and the way you sort of carry yourself and the way you have attention to the patients. The best consultants I've worked with are the ones that do walk into a situation. You can almost feel that collective exhalation and everyone just sort of calms down a little bit. I've had this a few times recently where, you know, in the middle of the night, someone's called me about a situation that isn't that bad, but the patient's declining and the registrar's calling me and I think I'd love to go back to sleep. It's going to sort itself out. But if I actually go in there, I may make no clinical difference at all Mm. to the patient, but I will make a difference to the staff morale that are bothered to come in. And Mm. I've had that happen. And, you know, as as I've got there, the patient might have been declining and and still end up dying several hours later. But the nurses have said, oh, thanks for coming in. That just made it so Mm. much easier for us to deal with this situation. And I know I don't think I'm anything special for having to come in. But, you know, I think that's one of the roles, again, we, we sort of underestimated intensivists, just being there. So some of the best colleagues I worked with were exactly that. They'd literally do the ward round thoroughly, then they'd go back to their office and every half an hour to an hour, they'd just walk through the ICU, just check what's going on and get a feel. You only have to walk through in three seconds, you can tell whether the place is out of control or not. Just by doing that regular walk past, it just gives everybody a sense of comfort and, you know, you're there to care and you will help if you're needed. You won't just walk past you if, you, if they need you and they ask you to come over, you'll be there. And I think that's a, a really valuable part of mm. our job. One last thing that I just want to, to ask you about, a large part of your career has been given over to um, pursuit of, of academic interests. Just wanted to, to get your take on, you're both on the period of time where you were really, really pursuing that and perhaps now when you're, as you're, as you're looking back at, at, that, at that time in your career. I was really moved when I was training by a chap called Ronaldo Belomo, who, who many may know, who's a, a leading Australian intensivist. And he was my boss, a consultant at the hospital I was training at. And he said to me, what he said to me is he said, Andrew, you know, you can make a difference as an intensivist as you grow up. Uh, you can make a difference in every individual patient on the day. You know, you've got 12 patients today. You can make 12 patients better today or help 12 patients in whatever way. And that's, that's an admirable effort. And that's fantastic. He then said, you could, Write a policy for your ICU, for example, that if you treat 1,500 patients a year throughout your ICU, you've made a difference to 1,500 patients rather than just the 12 that you were treating on that day. Or you could do research that you know might study thousands of patients or even a hand. You don't have to study thousands of patients, but your study may be so valuable that you will help thousands of patients all around the world because you do it. And that, that was highly motivating for me. Uh, I guess there was a component of what he said that also spoke to my ego at that time too that you know by becoming someone who published in a big journal you might become well known in the craft as well and might be asked to go give talks overseas and all that stuff so that that was also a slight motivator but but just the fact that you'd be helping more people than just in your ICU seemed amazingly attractive to me so that's what got me into research and of course once you do get there it's very hard to not keep doing it some people choose quickly that it's not right for them, but I found I was just very excited. Around that time in Australia and New Zealand, the ANZICS clinical trials group was set up, and so I got very involved with that. And that was great to have all these participating ICUs helping to do big trials and 
do things where we thought we were helping other people in other countries. So it became very powerful, motivating for me. In the end, I've got to say, uh, I found it very competitive research. I found it very uh, onerous. Uh, I was spending, you know, I was trying to be the best clinician I could be and I was also trying to be the best academic. And it's hard to fit both those roles in if you're full-time as a clinician. And so I burned out from doing it. And so I guess now I'm starting to to see that that it's not the right thing for everybody. Mm. Uh, It certainly made my eyes open now to two things. One, that evidence isn't always enough to influence clinicians that aren't interested in reading academic literature there's many of us who just do our jobs at the bedside hearing what we hear from other colleagues seeing what we see at the bedside occasionally going to a conference and picking up what the expert might say but without reading the journals and, and that's okay you can't make people read the journals and I, and I think therefore and 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 I, know, I think we also know that even when people do read the journals and know the facts they don't necessarily change their practice so I've come to understand that the evidence that we derive from all this great research that's being done around the world isn't enough. I don't think it's enough to make a good enough difference to our patients. So it's made me think that things like podcasting and other types of influencing can also be valuable in, in intensive care as a, as a specialty. And as well as that, I think I've found that by attracting myself to the idea of publishing and finding evidence and making sure that it, everything had to be done in an evidence-based fashion, whilst that is admirable, it takes you away from the human side. There's no doubt it takes you away from caring enough about what matters to your patient in the bed that might need you to be there talking to them and holding their hand and talking to their family. And and it takes you away from that. So my focus has changed from academic medicine. And I, I think it's really worth saying that if there are people listening that are at a junior stage of their career, they shouldn't have to do Research. I know a lot of the colleges expect you to do one project to get through, and that's fine. You know, you need to understand research enough to be able to read it, but to need to do it to become, you know, one of the major academics in the world is is not necessarily important. And I think so many aspects of the education now we can we can choose to do, uh, and as we said before, there are other roles in in the hospital that might be just as valuable as as anybody who's doing academic work. I now understand that we really need to sell to our training intensivists that there are three parts to their job, three parts of their life, I should say, that each of them needs to be done very well. One of them is excellent clinical care, the best clinical care, human caring, being at the bedside. That's really important. And I think most people get that right, but we can always still be get better at that. Then there's the bit that you do at work between the ward rounds, as I say, between you know the morning ward round and the afternoon sort of handover. There's a whole lot you can do and you should focus on one thing that you like to do, whether that is academic work, whether it is education, whether that's just being at the bedside. Again, you can come back to the bedside and be a great mentor uh, or just a great supporter of the staff in your hospital. You might be interested in health and well-being. You might be interested in uh, being on a committee for the college or whatever it is. You need to concentrate on only one thing. Don't do five things, do one thing. And then the third part of your life is outside work. And that has to be an important part of it, as you said, whether that's concentrating on your family, uh, whether that's concentrating on your hobbies, whether that's being out exercising, looking after your own health and well-being, whether it's just being with friends and doing the stuff that makes us happy. And I think if you do that well, you'll have a fun life and a fun career in intensive care. 